and welcome to the broadcast, the podcast. Hope you're having a wonderful, blessed Epiphany Tide. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and coming to you today from our Southern Command Center, deep behind the Orange Curtain. And today we're going to talk about um, a number of things, including a question that comes up amongst Catholics at precisely this time each year, namely, what, uh, when, I should say, does Christmas really end? Also, the U.S. bishops have called for a Eucharistic revival, and we're going to take a look at uh, some rather provocative proposals for what one priest insists is a real Eucharistic revival. And if time permits, we'll return to the subject of cultivating virtue with a closer look at what they call habit stacking. So all that and more coming up. But first, I want to talk about the Feast of the Epiphany, which happened last week. Uh, traditionally, Epiphany falls on January 6th. But it can be celebrated on the Sunday between January 2nd and January 8th. And so this year, in the extraordinary form, the Epiphany was celebrated right at the end there on the 8th of January. However, in the extraordinary form, it was celebrated as usual on the 6th. Also, in the ordinary form, the baptism of Jesus was celebrated last Monday, Monday the 9th, although it's traditionally celebrated on the octave of the Epiphany. So in the extraordinary form, it will be celebrated this Friday. Hence, Epiphany Tide, that time between the Epiphany and the baptism of the Lord. Now, all that said, when, whenever Epiphany is celebrated, the Church recalls a threefold mystery. Number one, the arrival in Bethlehem of the wise men from the East to adore the newborn Savior. Number two, the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. And number three, the first miracle of our Lord at the wedding at Cana. Now, the feast is called Epiphany, which means manifestation, because in the three events that I just mentioned, Jesus manifested himself, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, uh, as the expected Messiah, as the Redeemer of the world, and as the beloved Son of his Heavenly Father. So the introit for the extraordinary form mass of the Epiphany is taken from the prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold the Lord, the ruler is come, and a kingdom is in his hand, and power and dominion. And Psalm 71, 2. Give to the king thy judgment, O God, and to the king's son thy justice. So remembering that he is the newborn king. The epistle is taken from Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6, and it begins, Arise, be enlightened, O Jerusalem, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. And goes on from there. The prophet foretells the future manifestation of the light of the Lord Jesus to Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem was a type of the church. And he pro prophesies that by that light, the Gentiles should also enter into the one church of Christ. And now the Holy Gospel is the Adoration of the Magi. It's taken from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And uh, taking our text today from uh, Ignatius Schuster's Bible history. So it's a, a kind of a traditional paraphrase. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of King Herod, behold, there came three wise men, or Magi, from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to adore him. Herod, hearing this, was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And having assembled all the chief priests and scribes and the ancients of the people, he inquired of them where Christ should be born. 
They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet. Then Herod privately questioned the three magi as to the exact time when the star appeared to them. When they had told him, he said, Go and search after the child, and when you have found him, bring me word again, that I also may come and adore him. The Magi set out for Bethlehem, and no sooner had they left the palace of Herod than the star which they had not seen since their entrance into Jerusalem again appeared in the heavens, and following its guidance they came to the place where the divine infant was, with Mary his mother and St. Joseph. And entering in they adored the child, and opening their treasures they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That night God appeared to the kings in a dream and commanded them not to return to Herod. So they went back by another way to their own country. Thus was the wicked king disappointed in his expectation of finding out by means of these strangers the place where the child was. And thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So the Magi were men especially learned in the science of the stars. They were astrologers. And according to tradition, the three wise men were of high rank, and that's why they're often called the three kings. Scripture says they came from the east, from the land which lies beyond uh, where the sun rises. And Magi is a Persian word, so likely they came from Babylon or Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Now, of course, this was many centuries before Muhammad invented the Muslim religion, and in that part of the world, there was still preserved the memory of Balaam's prophecy that one day a star should rise in Judea, and that then the Redeemer, the heavenly king, would appear. Now, this belief in a future savior had been rekindled in Babylon by the prophet Daniel, who was one of the wise men of his day. And scripture says they saw his star. And, and this star, which you know the Magi saw, before they left their home, rising in the direction of Judea, and therefore the west, was no ordinary star. For Scripture says it went before them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and there stopped over the house where the child dwelt. And there's been many attempts at a, at a scientific explanation for the star of Bethlehem over the years, including the phenomenon of a planetary alignment or a passing comet and so forth. Um, the scripture also refers to stars as angels. So I, um, it wouldn't surprise me if it was a, a special instance, uh, you know, that, that was just for this particular event and, uh, um, you know, is not going to be discovered outside of it. But in any case, it was an appearance of light in the form of a star of extraordinary description. St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, uh, wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, a star appeared in the heavens which eclipsed all the other stars. Its light was indescribable, and its novelty caused astonishment. The holy kings, who, full of faith, were waiting for the promised Savior, recognized this star by divine inspiration to be the sign which was to herald the birth of the Messiah. And they came to adore him. See, the star had only directed the wise men generally towards Judea, and then temporarily vanished. But they were so firmly convinced that the Messiah had been born. I mean, they never even thought of inquiring if he had been born, but only where, where he was to be found. And they hoped to be able to learn that at the capital of Judea. I mean, where else? So they went straight to Jerusalem. And you can imagine the appearance of these strangers with their, their entourage, their servants and their camels and so forth, would naturally cause a great sensation in Jerusalem. 
especially when they asserted that the Savior had been born. Uh, scripture says, though, that, that Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You know, Herod was hated for his cruelty, and, and he was naturally concerned that if the Messiah had actually come, to, you know, that Jesus would dethrone him, or the Jews, rather, would dethrone him, uh, you know, in, in favor of the new king. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for their part, were saying to themselves, how is it that the Messiah is born and we don't know anything about it? Why has God revealed it to these strangers, but not to us? You know, what does that mean? And when they found out that the king was troubled by the news, they started to worry that it would prompt him to, you know, new and, and worse acts of cruelty. So Herod, says, assembled the chief priests, plural, namely the, the current high priest and those who had on former occasions held the office. See, during the reign of King Herod, uh, in, in violation of the Jewish law, the high priest was often deposed by the temporal authority. And so consequently, there were several high priests, quote-unquote, living at once, you know, the reigning high priest as well as the former ones. So he called them, he called the scribes, and he asked where Christ should be born. And since there had been no prophets for centuries and wouldn't be until John the Baptist, the scribes were the official expounders and interpreters of Holy Scripture. So the wise men had inquired after the newborn king of the Jews, and Herod evidently understood what they meant by that, for he asked the chief priest where, where the Messiah, where the Christ was to be born. You know, and Herod, um, it was more of a pagan than a Jew, and he wasn't well acquainted with the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And so he sent for the scribes to ask them where the Redeemer would be born. And they answered according to the prophet Micaiah, And thou, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth the captain that shall rule my people Israel. And Matthew tells us that Herod privately questioned the Magi, that he called them secretly, for he had already formed his murderous plan, which he did not wish to be known. And he feared that the Jews would you know, put the Christ child in a place of safety, they, they would hide him if they found out you know, how closely he was inquiring uh, about where he was. So he asked the Magi for the exact time when the star appeared to them, because he rightly judged that the star had appeared at the time of the birth of our Lord. <clears throat> Pardon me. And so he hoped, you know, by, by finding out when the star appeared, how old our Lord was. You remember in the Slot of, of the Innocents that he uh, decreed that all of the male children from two and under should be killed because it fit in that time frame. You know, um, a Jew, of course, well, the Magi didn't have any reason to doubt the monarch of Judea, you know, when he said he wanted to come and adore the child, they believed him. But of course, uh, a Jew in Jerusalem would have known better than to trust Herod because they knew him for the hypocrite that he was. And, uh, and of course, now they set off in the night to go to Bethlehem. And we'll pick it up right there when we come back. Also going to talk about the upcoming um, Eucharistic revival, or ongoing, I should say, Eucharistic revival, called for by the bishops, and uh, other things as well, habits stacking, and uh, <laughs> much more along the way. So stick with us, and we'll be right back after these messages.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We've been talking about the adoration of the Magi, and after leaving Herod, the wise men set off for Bethlehem, and the miraculous star reappeared and showed them the place or the house where he was. That's Matthew 2.11. Now, I know that you have three wise men in your nativity scene at home, okay, but they were not at the stable with the shepherds. The star appeared at Jesus' birth, and they had to travel all the way to Judea. In the meantime, as soon as the crowds who had flooded into Bethlehem uh, for the enrollment had gone home again, the Holy Family moved out of the stable and into a more appropriate dwelling place. And you can imagine how happy the Magi must have been when they finally found this child whom, you know, for whom they'd made this long and difficult journey. And Scripture says they adored the child. And that's significant because to adore means to worship. And they did worship Jesus because by the inspiration of divine grace, they recognized that this child was the Son of God. And therefore, it says they offered him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. An offering, that's the term we use for what we give to God. And then, of course, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod to prevent him from discovering the whereabouts of the child, and they went home by another way. You know, presumably they either crossed the Jordan uh, at Jericho, or maybe they went all the way around the Dead Sea. The point is that they wanted to avoid passing through Jerusalem. So what do we learn from all this? Well, there's a number of things. I, first on the list is the omniscience of God, that he knew exactly the thoughts of both Herod and of the wise men. He knew that the Magi and their sincerity would show Herod the place where the child lived, and he knew that Herod was resolved to kill the child, and that's why he told them to go home by another way. We also see the faithfulness of God in that he caused the prophecy of Micaiah to be fulfilled and by you know, a, a wonderful chain of circumstances carried out his design that the Redeemer should be born at Bethlehem. You know, it's, it's when you think about it, it's uh, God actually through his providence arranged for the, the Roman emperor to cause that, uh, you know, ask for that enrollment that caused them to go to Bethlehem. And the visit of the Magi reveals that Jesus Christ is God, that he's the redeemer of mankind and all mankind, the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He proved himself to be such by revealing himself after his birth, first to the, the Jewish shepherds by means of an angel, and then to the Gentile Magi by means of a star. And I don't know if I mentioned this already, but stars and angels are sometimes, you know, that star is a metaphor for angels in the scriptures. And he manifested himself as the omnipotent God and the Lord of hosts, because he's both the Lord of angels and of the stars. And so we see here the uh, properties of the faith. You know, I, it's impossible not to admire the living faith of the three wise men. First, that they believed in the prophecy from which they knew that the Redeemer would appear in Judea and that his advent would be heralded by the star. And so as soon as they perceived that star, they set off on the road to Judea and, and full of this holy desire to behold and worship the Savior. And so they didn't, you know, count the dangers or the difficulties they would encounter on this long journey. And they weren't discouraged when the star disappeared, but traveled on and, you know, for further information, went to Jerusalem to ask where the Savior was to be born. And here, I think, their, their faith was the most severely tried, because nobody in Jerusalem knew anything about the Redeemer being born. You know, it was they who first brought the tidings uh, of his birth to the city. And the tidings, you know, when, when the angels appeared to the shepherds, he said, I bring you tidings of great joy. 
But here, the, the tidings of, of the wise men didn't awaken feelings of joy, but of anxiety. And that might have easily caused them to doubt as to whether that sign in the heavens had, had deceived them, if they were in, really in the right place. But they didn't give place to such doubts. On the contrary, they stayed firm, and their faith was not shaken by the opinion of others. Hey, there's a lesson in that for us. They believed the prophecy of Micaiah and the interpretation of it given by the priests and the scribes. And while it was still night, while it was still dark, they started for Bethlehem. And it's interesting that, that no one from Jerusalem accompanied them. They traveled alone to the city of David. And you might have thought that, that all of Jerusalem would have flocked along with them to seek out the Messiah. But no, even the priests were skeptical and stayed behind and left it to these Gentile kings to discover the newborn Savior. And that couldn't have been encouraging for the wise men either. But as a reward for their faithfulness, the star reappeared and led them to the house where the child Jesus and his mother had found lodging. And there, in that poor dwelling, they beheld a little child with his humble maiden mother. And inspired by divine grace, they threw themselves on their knees and worshipped this infant as their God and Savior. St. Augustine says, would they have done this if they had not recognized him as the eternal king? And so with the wise men, we see a wonderful example of correspondence with grace. When our Lord was born, the angels sang peace on earth to men of goodwill. And the Magi were men of goodwill. They cooperated with grace and therefore obtained peace and salvation. And how? Well, it was grace that made them see the star and understand its meaning. As I said before, no doubt there were other wise men in the East who understood that the star indicated the birth of the Messiah, but they didn't answer this divine invitation to seek out the Savior. These three only obeyed that invitation of grace and left hearth and home to make the long journey to um, Judea. But by corresponding faithfully with this first grace, they obtained the further grace of learning in Jerusalem the place where the Messiah was born. And because they believed the prophecy of Micaiah and went to Bethlehem, God not only showed them the way to the child's abode, but illuminated them interiorly so that they understood the mystery of the incarnation and worshipped the child Jesus with divine worship. You know, and then they so faithfully pres preserved or persevered in this faith, uh, this faith in the divine Savior, that according to tradition, they were counted worthy to suffer martyrdom for their faith and they are venerated as saints by the church. Um, back in the Middle Ages, in, in the year 1164, the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick the Red, brought their relics to the Cathedral of Cologne in Germany, where you can still visit them today. And all of this should impress upon us the important doctrine that the more you cooperate with the grace given to you, the more worthy you will be to receive, to receive further and greater graces from God. Now, you contrast that with the indifference shown by the priests and the scribes. It's almost inconceivable. Inconceivable! <laughs> they received from the wise men these undeniable tidings of the wonderful star. They, they knew the prophecies about the Redeemer, but they did not cooperate with the grace received. And they did not stir a foot to seek the Messiahs. They showed the wise men where the, where the Savior was to be born, but they themselves stayed at home. They waited for the Messiah to come to them. And then later on, when he did come to them, they wouldn't receive him because he was poor and humble and not what they expected. And so they persecuted him and nailed him to the cross, which shows us that pride is a capital sin. 
because it was his pride. It was the ambition and the envy of Herod that led him to resolve to kill the Messiah. And in order to ensure that he obtained that evil end, he lied to the wise men, saying that he also wished to worship the child. So from the very beginning, lies and hypocrisy have been the weapons used against Christ and his church, and so on till today. Now, the Feast of the Three Magi, the Feast of Epiphany, January 6th, um, these re, you know, re, recalls that these three wise men were the first Gentiles to whom our Lord manifested himself as the Savior of mankind. And as representatives of the pagan world, which was longing for its Redeemer, they offered their adoration to him. And so we should, therefore, not just on Epiphany, but all the time, thank God for our Catholic faith, because our fathers were also pagans. And we ought to praise the infinite love of God who gave his only begotten son for the salvation of all men. Um, also, the kind of lastly here, the significance of those gifts, the, the gifts that were offered to the Christ child by the, the wise men are full of meaning. In Israel, incense could be offered to God alone. So any human king of Israel to whom incense was offered would, would have been an abomination in the sight of God. So by offering incense to the baby Jesus, the Magi expressed their worship of God hidden under the humble form of this child. And by the offering of gold, they acknowledged him as king, because that's the gift that you give to a king. And myrrh, myrrh is a, a sweet-smelling, it's a resin, actually, which is put on the bodies of the dead to preserve them from corruption. So by the gift of myrrh, the Magi desired to show their veneration for the human nature of Jesus which was destined for suffering and death and burial. Therefore, they offered gold to the king, incense to God, and myrrh to the man. And you and I, we received so many graces from God. The question that we should ask ourselves as we enter into this new year is, how faithfully have I corresponded to those graces? Uh, have I ever actually resisted God's grace? You know, St. Paul says, we exhort you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. And like the Magi, you and I can offer gifts to our Lord Jesus too. The gold of love, the incense of worship, and the myrrh of patience in our suffering. And that's no nonsense. Okay, <clears throat> pardon me. We're going to talk about Eucharistic revival. Uh, but uh, as a segue here, there, there is a connection between uh, Eucharistic revival and the Epiphany. We adore the Blessed Sacrament for the very same reason that the Magi adored the Christ child, because it is the same Son of God whom the wise men worshipped under the form of a child, who we today, full of faith and reverence, worship under the appearance of bread in the most holy sacrament of the altar. And so it is definitely time for a Eucharistic revival, and we'll talk about that in uh, in just a minute. <clears throat> I wanted to remind you, though, in the meantime, that this very weekend, on the 14th of January, we will be having our evangelization conference uh, at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. So you can go for information about that to vmpr.org to find the location, time, and all that stuff. It starts in the morning on Saturday. You can uh, register ahead of time uh, at the website if you want, so that everything will be ready when you get there, or you can uh, purchase your admission at the door. It's going to be 
$35, I believe, for uh, an individual and well, I don't remember, 70 for a couple, I think. But you can go on the website and know for sure, and I'll find out and let you know when we come back, uh, the exact pricing on that. But it's going to be Johnny Romero, a talented local apologist and brother to our own Jesse Romero, and uh, the fearless leader of Virgin Most Powerful Radio, Terry Barber, who, as I often say, literally wrote the book on evangelization. He he uh, wrote his book for um, Ignatius Press, How to Share Your Faith with Anyone. And so you're going to learn uh, at this conference how to share your faith at a time when sharing your faith has become probably more difficult than ever, certainly more difficult than it's been uh, heretofore in my lifetime since I've become a Catholic. So um, go to vmpr.org and check all of that out. And also we've got our Spiritual Warfare Conference coming up in March. You can find out about that on the website as well. And register for that uh, ahead of time, which I suggest you do, because it fills up fast and it always sells out. So check that out. And we'll be right back with uh, the Eucharistic Revival and lots more on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. In the past weeks, I have made mention of the U.S. bishop's call for a Eucharistic revival. And this can only be a good thing in principle, of course, but we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out in practice. Uh, a few weeks ago, again, I spoke of how it seems that these pastoral initiatives kind of come and go, but nothing changes. And I wonder who among us remembers the last big initiative. You know, who can recall the, the, the insipid slogans, our faith, our future, together in mission, let us journey together, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum, all professionally printed in four color vinyl banners that grace the exterior walls of our churches for a year or two and then are gone. Now, with this in mind, I'd like to draw your attention to an article I read on the Crisis Magazine website uh, just the other day from Father John A. Perricone, or Perricone. I, I'll call him Father John. His article is called A Radical Proposal for the USCCB's Eucharistic Revival. Now, we here at VMPR have often referred to the 2020 Pew Research Study that polled Catholics on their belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and how an astounding 70% indicated that they believe that the, uh, the Eucharist is merely a symbolic reminder of Jesus and not his body, blood, soul, and divinity. In other words, they either do not know the church's teaching on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, or they simply do not believe it. Now, Father John says, quote, the American bishops seemed to have noticed this alarming anomaly in the past year. Odd that they should have detected this doctrinal collapse so recently, since it has been glaringly evident for over a half century. It's rather like a man being bitten by a shark and only screaming an hour later. <laughs> so you can see it's written in a, in a particular style. Now, he traces the crisis back to the theology of infamous characters like Edward Skillebex and Karl Rahner and, quote-unquote, the whole Concilium Uve, uh, Concilium being the eponymous name of the magazine published by the committee that was charged with the so-called renewal of the liturgy. Now, Father says that all of this cerebral theological ground laying would have wound up so many dead letters gathering dust in some college library 
but for the two-pronged spear of liturgy and catechesis. You know, I've said many times that the crisis of faith rests on the crisis of catechesis and liturgical abuse. And according to Father John, quote, so thorough was this transformation of Eucharistic theology that well-meaning Catholics now confidently call the Mass a meal. And under this logic, it is quite hostile to refuse any man or woman access to the Holy Eucharist. Not a few bishops growl at a priest even publicly repeating the traditional requirements for reception of Holy Communion. Which brings us back to the bishops and their call for a three-year Eucharistic revival to culminate in uh, a Eucharistic Congress in 2024. The question is, of what will this Eucharistic revival consist? So far, it's articles, and videos, and uh, conferences, I suspect, meetings. See, the thing is, the faithful didn't get talked out of their belief in the real presence. It took a change of practice to bring it about. And that's where Father John's quote-unquote radical proposals come in. Number one, tabernacles return to the center of every church. Number two, to abolish communion in the hand. Number three, eliminate extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. And number four, reception of the communion should be kneeling. So let's take a quick look at those proposals, kind of one at a time here. I mean, the first is probably the least controversial, but uh, the most difficult to accomplish because it would require remodeling in some cases. And that's returning the tabernacles to the center of the church, that is, at, in the sanctuary behind the altar. You know, like most liturgical innovations, there was no call to do this, certainly no need to remove tabernacles from the altars. But wait, wasn't that in Vatican II? Well, in a word, no. What Vatican II actually said regarding the tabernacle and Sacrosanctum Concilium is enshrined in Canon 938 of the Code of Canon Law. The tabernacle in which the Eucharist is regularly reserved should be placed in a part of the church that is prominent, conspicuous, beautifully decorated, and suitable for prayer. And this could certainly be construed as confirming the status quo requiring the placement of the, uh, regarding the placement of the tabernacle in most churches. But the innovators found in it a mandate to remove the tabernacle off to the side of the sanctuary or into another room altogether. I can remember when our former parish uh, refitted the proposed cry room into a quote-unquote Eucharistic chapel. Just a small, bare room at the back of the church containing nothing but the tabernacle itself and a few stackable chairs. I mean, they even frosted the glass of the window that looked into the church so that you couldn't see it. So the tabernacle could not be seen from anywhere in the church, so much for prominent. That room was entirely unadorned, so no beautiful decorations, because well, no decorations of any kind, and no kneelers, of course, so hardly a, a suitable space for prayer, especially Eucharistic adoration, which needs to be done kneeling. And yet, when it was complete, our Monsignor invited us to take some time and stop and pray in our, quote, prominent and beautifully decorated adoration chapel as if not only symbols, but, but words no longer have any meaning at all. And Father John says liturgists may not abide by the inescapable laws of the natural symbol, but ordinary folks do. So number one, put the tabernacle back where it belongs. Second proposal, abolish communion in the hand. Now, Father rightly condemns this practice as an, quote, undisguised rupture with a millennial tradition, 
one which, quote, deeply implanted a reflexive understanding of the Holy Eucharist, unquote. Now, how so? Well, Father points out that the traditional practice effortlessly conveyed to all alike the inexpressible sacredness of the sacrament of the altar. No words necessary, no lengthy explanations required. Thus, he says, we see the immediacy of the symbolic act, informing, uplifting, and impassioning. Now, I've got a catechism from the early 80s, uh, 80s that portrays the novel practice of communion in the hand as a quote-unquote restored option. But there's no compelling evidence that communion in the hand was ever the universal practice in the church. And if it ever was, the one thing we know for sure is that it was universally abandoned everywhere in the church, both east and west, more than a thousand years ago. And now that we live in a reality where the majority of Catholics do not go to Mass at all, and 70% of those who do no longer hold the faith, perhaps we can see now why it was forbidden. <clears throat> Third proposal, eliminate extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Father says, to the ca common Catholic mind of today, a suggestion such as this sounds like the abolition of the Ten Commandments, which only goes to show, he says, how pervasive is the common misunderstanding of the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. He says, quote, the fact that few Catholics refer to extraordinary ministers is further proof of the tight grip of doctrinal understanding. And of course, he's right. Now, the, the lay minister of, of communion is, is properly referred to as an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, not as a Eucharistic minister, okay? Not a Eucharistic minister of, of any kind, extraordinary or otherwise. Only the ordained are ministers of the Eucharist. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that only that which has been consecrated can touch the host. That is why the corporal and the chalice and the priest's hands are consecrated. Even the new teaching regarding these lay ministers says that they are only to be used in cases of necessity. So imagine a, a, a priestless parish where there's no one else to take communion to the, to the homebound or, or, or to a mass that's so crowded that communion would take an unreasonably long time. But that's altogether different from what I've seen with my own eyes Sunday after Sunday where a small army of, of extraordinary ministers troop into the sanctuary and oftentimes to six or eight Eucharistic uh, extraordinary ministers, as I should say, to distribute communion to maybe 40 people at a daily mass. Okay. That, that's, <laughs> I mean, you could apply the word extraordinary to that, but uh, not because of its necessity. Lastly, the, the fourth proposal is reception of communion should always be kneeling. The last few years, uh, according to Father John, have seen a veritable war waged on the few Catholics who follow the or what he calls the crystalline interior logic of Orthodox Catholic doctrine, kneeling to receive Holy Communion. And he says that those who seek to keep the faithful from kneeling for communion try and justify it on the grounds of uniformity or local custom. But Father says, even the most naive Catholic sees this for the naked dissembling which it is. One stands to grab a free lunch, not to receive the bread of angels. It is a puzzlement that the same shepherds that perpetrated this not-so-veiled diminution of Eucharistic doctrine desire now to promote Eucharistic doctrine, unquote. But I dare hope that it's a good sign that things are, are, are finally starting to turn around. Now, Father Pericone, or Pericone, 
concludes by noting our good bishops have been perfectly willing to make radical gestures in the past, even when they've shaken the faithful. Why not one more, he asks, or four more? And he encourages the bishops to, quote, embark on a startling Eucharistic revival, a traditional one. The only thing you have to lose, he says, is a crisis. And that's no nonsense. All right, I'm going to jump into my documents here because I should have a um, all of that uh, details that I was talking about regarding the upcoming conferences. And I really wanted to share that with you. Uh, la, la, la. Uh, here we go. Yeah, uh, so uh, on the 14th, we're going to have the evangelization conference at the Sacred Heart Chapel. And all day, or it's not an all day, it's a uh, um, half-day event. Our featured speakers are going to be Johnny Romero and uh, Terry Barber. Admission is $35 for a single and $60 for a married couple. That's that's quite the deal. Uh, and that's coming up this very Saturday, the 14th of January. Also coming up before you know it, our annual spiritual warfare conference on March 25th and 26th of 2003. And we've got a special guest this year. Uh, we're going to have everybody uh, that we had last year, um, Father Chad Ripiger, our own Jesse Romero, Dr. Dan Schneider, and Kyle Clements from Libra Cristo. But we're also going to be joined by Bishop Joseph Strickland. So I encourage you to uh, go to VMPR, find out about that. And uh, it's going to be $95 for a single, $180 for a married couple. Registration's open. Do it now. And we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, round four of No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and moving on, it is time again to ask the musical question, when does Christmas actually end? Uh, this is the title of an article that was posted on the Rhode Island Catholic site by Christine Roussel, Catholic news agency writer, and on January the 5th of 2023. And in her article, she posits the questions, how many days is Christmas? When do you take down the lights in the tree? In other words, when does Christmas really end? And, and there, there's several answers, actually. Uh, for most folks, including too many Catholics, I'm afraid, Christmas is just the one day, December 25th. Of course, that's when we celebrate the Feast of the Nativity of Our Lord. And I will mention that uh, the priest is vested in white. Uh, the reason why I bring that up will come up in a minute. Others say that uh, Christmas lasts eight days because Christmas is an octave, or an eight-day celebration. So the octave of Christmas begins on the Feast of the Nativity and concludes on January 1st, the Feast of the Circumcision of the Lord in the Extraordinary Form, or the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, in the Ordinary Form. And during the eight days of Christmas, the clergy continue to wear white, except on St. Stephen's Day and the Feast of the Holy Innocents, where they wear red for martyrdom. But what about the 12 days of Christmas. Well, again, this idea is based on a liturgical precedent. In this case, um, the case for considering Christmas to be 12 days long, uh, 12 days after Christmas is the Feast of the Epiphany, uh, which we were talking about earlier. This, you know, that marks the day when the Magi brought the Jesus, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
In the Latin rite of the Church, Epiphany celebrates the revelation that Jesus was the Son of God, and it focuses primarily on this revelation to the three wise men, but also on his baptism in the Jordan and his self-manifestation at the wedding at Cana. But here's where it gets a little confusing. Well, the traditional date for the feast is January the 6th, in the Novus Ordo for the United States, the celebration of Epiphany is moved to the second Sunday after Christmas, so between the 2nd and 8th of January. And in 2023, American Catholics who ascended or attend the ordinary form celebrated Epiphany this last Sunday, right? But in any case, during the 12 days of Christmas, the clergy continues to wear white with the exception of Stephen's Day and the Holy Innocents. And the point of mentioning the colors of the vestments is this. Since the celebrant is not wearing green, that tells us that the Novus Ordo calendar has not yet returned to, quote-unquote, ordinary time. So Christmas ends January the 13th, the, the feast of the baptism of the Lord, right? Their, their Christmas season. All right, so in the ordinary form, Christmas includes both the season of Christmas that's the 12 days of Christmas, and the season of Epiphany, which is the eight days from January 6th to the commemoration of the baptism of the Lord, which seems pretty solid, although this year they celebrated the baptism of the Lord on the 9th, okay, on the, the Monday following. So, <clears throat> but, you know, traditionally it was the from the 6th to the 13th. But there are some folks who would maintain that Christmas only ends on the 2nd of February, and that is the date of, of Candlemas, also known as the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, also known as the Feast of the Purification of Mary. On this day, many Catholics bring candles to the church to be blessed, and then the candles are then lit at home as the symbol of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Uh, Candlemas is the last day that the Alma Redemptoris Mater is the Marian antiphon that we append to the hours of the divine office. The Alma Redemptoris Mater, O Loving Mother of the Redeemer, is used in the office from the beginning of Advent through the 2nd of February. So Candlemas came to be associated with the close of the Christmas season, which would include Epiphany Tide, right? In, in the extraordinary form, you've got uh, that, that octave of the Epiphany that, that is uh, Epiphany Tide and not technically Christmas. And then all of the Sundays until Septuagesima Sunday are referred to as the Sundays after Epiphany. Right? They, don't, they don't have ordinary time in the, in the traditional calendar. However, the, the you know, Christmas lasts until Candlemas position, uh, even in the extraordinary form, is somewhat undermined by the fact that Septuagesima Sunday, which is the first Sunday in the extraordinary form lead up to Lent, kind of that pre-Lenten season, that first Sunday uh, has been known to fall before the 2nd of February. So we're back to that original question, when does Christmas end? Well, according to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the liturgical season of Christmas ends with the celebration of the baptism of the Lord, after which the clergy return to the green vestments of ordinary time. Now, in the end, I, I believe that the way tradition, likewise, would side with the 12 days of Christmas then followed by the octave of the Epiphany. Now, Ms. Russell of the Catholic News Agency concludes that the right time to observe the end of the Christmas season is, quote, largely a personal call based on your own uh, traditions, customs, and other factors. For safety reasons, Catholic News Association recommends that you take your tree down as soon as it starts shedding a ton of pine needles. 
But other than that, there's an argument for leaving things up as late as February 2nd. She says, of course, your neighbors may disagree, but that's a them problem, not a you problem, unquote. As for me and my house, we took down the decorations on the 14th, with the exception of the nativity scene, which we will leave up until Candlemas. Okay. Uh, la la la. I'm not going to have time for this. So we're going to uh, go down to. Okay. Last week we were talking about New Year's resolutions and how to keep them. And if you've made a resolution about daily prayer or Bible reading, for example, you might try something called habit stacking to help it along. So uh, I've taken a few ideas from an article by Bob Hostetler on the Guidepost website called Six Ways to Build Up Your Prayer Life by Habit Stacking. Now, no doubt you can find any number of things in your routine that you can, quote-unquote, stack a quick prayer or a brief reading from one of those daily devotional books like we talked about last week. You know, every day is a gift, or the Bible day by day, day by day by the saints, and so on. Um, you know, there, there's lots of things that you can piggyback that kind of uh, activity onto, habits that you already have. Uh, like yours truly, Mr. Hotstetler says he suffers from hypertension and is in the habit of taking his blood pressure every day. So there is an opportunity for him to habit stack. And then he offered these suggestions. Uh, he says, if you use mouthwash, swish it around for a minute. He said, <laughs> that can seem like a, uh, uh, you know, you're supposed to swish it around for 30 seconds or a minute. And that can seem like a ridiculously long time. He said, but if you slowly pray the Lord's prayer interiorly or even physically hum a favorite hymn, you'll soon automatically pray while you're swishing. Okay. Every time. Number two, he asked, do you sit in the same place every evening to turn on the TV? This is a good one. He says, why not place the remote under your Bible or a favorite devotional book? Read and then watch TV. And he says, and then return the remote to its place and you'll always know where to find it, which is an added benefit. And pretty soon you'll be in the habit of doing some spiritual reading before you do your your television viewing. Number three, he asks, are there people that call you regularly? Right? Tell your or people that you call regularly. Tell yourself, I'll say a prayer for this person before I call. Uh, Number two, are there people who call you regularly? Right? So this is not so much a habit as a regular occurrence, but if you change their ringtone to something um, that will let you know who it is, he says you can prompt a quick prayer before you answer. Right? And he recommends, you know, making it like chiming church bells or something. Uh, But that way you can pray for the person that's calling you or you know, if you get the kind of regular phone calls I do, you might want to pray for patience before you pick up. But anyway, uh, you know, making a new habit. Number five, how often do you open Facebook or some other social media site? He said uh, you can determine to pray for the first friend whose photo pops up when you start scrolling or, or some, you know, some similar thing. Pray before. And, you know, it's, it's a probably a good idea to pray before you go on social media anyway, just as a general practice. Uh, but if you have a habit of going out at a certain time, that builds in that habit of prayer. And he also says, uh, he asks, do you pour yourself a cup of coffee or tea every morning and wait for it to cool? He says, why not revolve while I'm waiting for my, my cuppa, as he calls it, to cool, I'll pray for my family. Or, you know, maybe I will, uh, while I'm waiting for the tea to brew, I'm waiting for the, for the Keurig to make my coffee, I'm waiting for it to cool off to be able to drink it. You know, that's an excellent time, and early morning is a good time anyway, to stop and pray. 
and I do that. I, I, I will pray my office with a, uh, with a cup of coffee early in the morning. Now it's been so cold lately at eight o'clock in the morning, it's, it's still dark and, and <laughs> cold. So I haven't been going outside, but the cup of coffee still comes in handy. Right. So, um, that's something that I, you know, a habit that I already had that you can attach that, uh, morning office to, which has, uh, you know, long since become habit for me anyway. Now I will grant you that these are small measures, but they can make a big difference in helping you to cultivate some good habits, especially as you stack spiritual habits to things that you already do on a regular basis. You know, as my silver haired old mother used to say, mighty oaks from little acorns grow. And you know, even if these, none of these suggestions are right for you, give it some thought. Think about your existing habits and think about the prayer routine that you'd like to develop. Or if you'd simply just like to be in a, a, a greater habit of prayer. I'll give the final word to Mr. Hostetler. He said, finding ways to connect current and future habits will easily help you become more prayerful in your daily life. And that's no nonsense. Okay. You know what? Um, I have just about exhausted my time. I had another story here, but I will save it for next week or another appropriate time. In the meantime, um, just want to say thank you for joining us here. Want to encourage you especially to go on our website, to go on vmpr.org and to download the smartphone app. Okay. Even if you uh, listen to this podcast on your, your favorite platform, I, I would recommend the app to you, not only because, you know, uh, all of our shows appear there, but there's lots of other stuff. We have a whole uh, audio catechism series. We have innumerable prayers. We have the Holy Rosary um, that, that uh, plays on the app every day, or it's there on demand for whenever you want it. There's a lot of really good content, and we're adding more all the time. So that's something It's absolutely free. And, and you, you, you're carrying around your smartphone anyway. You may as well carry Virgin Most Powerful Radio along with you uh, wherever you go. Also, the conferences that are coming up, don't forget this Saturday the 14th here at the Sacred Heart Chapel, Johnny Romero and Terry Barber, the Conference on Evangelization. So important uh, these days, and you're going to go and learn how you can share your faith with anyone, even in these difficult times. Also, I'm so thankful for your prayers, and I and I do appreciate that, and I and I'm thankful for the for the emails and uh, that come in, and uh, uh, I just want to say that if you want to contact me, you know you can uh, you can email vmpr or matt at matthewarnold.org. I'll do my best to get back to you, or I'll address it on the show, or both. Okay, and uh, as long as along with your prayers, we can also use your financial help, of course. And that you do also at vmpr.org. And until next time, just want to say thanks for listening, and God bless you and your family. <laughs>